Good morning, good morning, dear ones, and a special welcome to all of those who are here this morning and braved the cold. We hope that you are thawing out now, and a special welcome to those of you who are warm, viewing in your family room. One of the things that we can know and trust is that wherever you are, God is present, and we believe that, and we are so glad you are leaning in. And last, and certainly but not least, a special welcome to our Butterfield campus. I am so thrilled to be with you today and to be kicking off our new series, So This Is Love, and to our Butterfield campus, happy three-year anniversary. I have been watching your story and watching God move in and through your ministry, and it has been such a joy and thrill. And as I said, we are kicking off our new series this morning, so this is love, where yes, we are talking about marriage, love, and relationships. But first, just a brief pastoral word to all of this. Yes, we are focusing on marriage because we as pastors here often get the front row seat to marriages that are thriving and also to marriages that are struggling. And as the New York Times and and other sources also recently noted, during this pandemic, divorces are skyrocketing and marriages are struggling. And we here at Christ Church, we care about marriages. So we want to dig in together. We want to see marriages thrive and flourish. I also want to say that some of these principles that we are discussing may not apply the same to anyone who's enduring abuse of any kind. And we just want you to know if you find yourself in that place, we take that seriously and we are here for you. Secondly, if you are leaning in today and you're single, divorced, or widowed, don't check out on us. We want you to know that your value and your worth is not predicated upon whether or not you have a spouse or a significant other at your side. You are valuable and loved at the table just as you are here at the family of God. And we believe that these principles that we are going to unpack over the next two weeks for this series can be applied for all relationships. So hang tight. And again, if you've recently gone through or if you've been through a divorce, we are sorry for the pain that you've endured. And we pray that this series gives you a shame-free, grace-filled vision of thriving relationships and marriages. And so before we dig in, let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of relationship the gift of relationship that we have in you and your presence. We thank you for the gift of love that we have in you. And Lord, we thank you for the horizontal gift of relationship that we have with one another and for the gift of marriage. Lord, we pray that you would give us all a grace-filled vision of a thriving and flourishing marriage, that you would speak to all of us and that we would hear from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
As a pastor, I get to attend or officiate many weddings, and I love attending weddings, especially with Jeff. There's always a moment where I snuggle up closely next to him. By the way, Jeff is my husband of 15 years. And there's, there's always a moment during the wedding ceremony where I snuggle up to Jeff and I look at him and I say, remember? Remember when that was us, when we said our vows for the first time? And it's always so exciting to gather at those ceremonies. We think, oh my goodness, they are so in love. They get to spend the rest of their lives together. And then they think, we're spending the rest of our lives together. Because this person you married over time, we realize that this person that you fell in love with is now throwing wet towels on the ground after getting on the shower. (laughs) Or this person that you fell in love with is eating cereal in bed at 10 (laughs) p.m. Or this person that you fell in love with drools while they sleep. Or this person that you fell in love with has this really annoying or strange habit of cleaning their teeth with a straw after eating or clipping their fingernails in bed. And then sometimes the issues over time, this person that we fell in love with, accelerate. As couples have different expectations of intimacy or different expectations on parenting and discipline or different expectations on how to handle finances or different expectations on household chores or work and career or how to interact with in-laws. And sometimes the issues mound and build up and couples begin to drift. Criticism becomes the norm. Arguing is on the regular. And eventually couples then become utilitarian and almost like roommates and the romance begins to fade and eventually emotional detachment is the regular way of living and they drift apart. And they wonder, we were once so compatible, how are we now so seemingly in compatible. Here's the devastating reality. Sometimes marriages fail. Even to really good people. Sometimes marriages fail. And this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, this problem goes all the way back to the beginning, if you remember. In the beginning, we see God create the heavens and the earth, and we see humanity in perfect harmony or shalom with one another and with God. We see God's ideal for relationships, harmony, equality, Shalom, unity, cohesion, togetherness. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, and the word here is ezer, suitable for him. Now, 
We're gonna dig a little bit more into this next week, but oftentimes this is viewed as a subordination, that woman is helper to man. But what we actually see as we dig into scripture is this word is also used to describe God. In Psalm 10:14, it says, you are a helper of the fatherless. This word helper is the same word ezer. Now God is not subordinate. Helper then is this idea of a cohesive, complementary partner. It paints this picture of cohesion and togetherness as a couple and as two. In Genesis 2.23, it says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is another way of saying this is me, but in a different form. Again, unity and cohesion. And then we get to Genesis 2.25, and we see then that they were naked and unashamed. Again, there was no shame. There was vulnerability. There was openness. There was love. There was cohesion. So what then went wrong? Well, Adam and Eve then rebel and then come the curses. In Genesis 3.16, we see a curse between Adam and Eve or man and woman. It says your desire will be towards your husband and he will rule over you. Now, it's important for us to understand that when this curse comes, this happens after the fall. So God is not saying, ah, now we've arrived. This is the way that marriages should be. Men should rule over women and women will then desire their husbands. Another way of saying this is this is a description of how life will be after the fall, not a prescription. And again, we're going to dig into this more next week. But this is a description of the animosity that we are going to see between man and woman, that we are going to see between humanity, that, that men are going to rule over women. And then this word desire, we often think of it as a longing. But the same word is used in Genesis chapter four, verses six through seven. When, when God comes to Cain, as Cain is wanting to murder his brother, God says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. So this word desire then means a sense of wanting to manipulate or control. So again, when these curses come, God does not say, ah yes, at last, now we've arrived. But what we see is a descriptive backdrop of how life is going to be after the fall. That men will seek to rule over and lord over women and that women are going to seek to to manipulate or control and we're going to see then this fallen nature between man and women of this tug of war, my way, no my way, no my way, no my way. Our love is flawed, you see. 
because we are flawed. And this is the brokenness that we bring into our marriages. You see, marriages sometimes fail. Marriages sometimes fail because we ourselves are broken. Marriages sometimes fail because we ourselves are broken. At the root of failing marriages then is this right here, that all of us, no one is scotch-free here, all of us have been corrupted by the brokenness of the fall and this is what we all bring into our marriages. We are by nature selfish human beings. As John Gottman notes, he says, marriages don't fail because someone forgot to put the toilet seat down. But instead, it's deeply connected to brokenness. He continues, broken marriages are often caught up in endless and useless rounds of argument that leads to feelings of isolation and loneliness in marriage. We are broken and we bring our brokenness into our relationships and into our marriages. Secondly, marriages sometimes fail because an overinflated idealization of myself and my partner. Now this over-ideal this overinflated idealization of our partner, often we see right at the beginning of romance, when, when Eros enters the scene. Now, Eros is important. This, this Greek word Eros is a form of love that is the romantic love. It is a sensual love. It is a physical love. It is that beginning feeling, you know, when you just have fireworks and it seems like the birds are singing and it seems like the whole world is just centered around your love with your partner. You are intoxicated by the idea of this person. Eros is a gift, but Eros is also flawed. Why? Because we are flawed. You've heard the phrase, love is blind. You see, when Eros gets involved, we have an overinflated view of our partner and we put them on a pedestal. And we think they are perfect. We are perfect. Our marriage is never going to be difficult because of what we have got right here. In his book, Frank Velasa, What is Love? He says this, he says, what we don't realize is, is we've been drugged by nature. Deb Hirsch says this, Eros is by its very nature seductive. It allures by obscuring, by hiding, by deception. In other words, we view our partner on a great pedestal. They are perfect. And again, this is a gift. But eventually, Eros begins to fade. Those butterflies begin to disappear. 
and this overinflated idealization that we have of our partner, that begins to crumble. And so what do couples often do? While this overinflated idealization of our partner begins to crumble, this overinflated idealization of myself does not. And so what do we do? You're the problem. You're the one that is a problem. As they come off that pedestal, we suddenly realize they are not the person we thought they were. They have flaws. And when it comes to brokenness, we point the finger at our spouse. I'm not broken. You're broken. You're the problem. You need to change. And John Gottman says that he can predict divorce at a rate of 91% success. He says one of those markers is criticism. That finger pointed outward. And so couples reach this point then, again, my way, no my way, and they are pointing the finger at the brokenness of their spouse. And then they begin looking for the secret sauce. We need the secret sauce so our marriage can thrive. We need the secret sauce so our marriage can flourish. You see, there's perhaps no such thing as just a secret sauce in the ways that so many often think about it. You see, the secret sauce is not common interests or hobbies. The secret sauce is, is not equal domestic responsibility or conflict avoidance or perfect combati- compatibility more time in the bedroom, more money, more vacations, but instead it's something more meaningful and more lasting. You see, because yes, it's true we bring brokenness into our marriage. And yes, it's true that we often begin with this overinflated idealization of myself and my partner. And yes, it's true that marriages get hard and, and our spouses come off a pedestal. But it's also true of the possibility of a redeemed marriage. That is when Jesus and the Spirit and the love of God the Father begin to get involved. Couples begin to shape and form and we see a redeemed marriage. You see, a redeemed marriage, first and foremost, has agape or covenant love as its foundation. Instead of just eros, which eventually begins to fade now and then, we see this agape love, which agape comes from God. It is perfect love. It is this idea of covenant love. For we know that God is love. And we see all throughout scripture this incredible vision of agape and a covenant love rolling from the narrative of the story of God. And we see something much deeper than just a secret sauce. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a vision for the characteristics of agape love. He says love is patient Love is kind, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, 
It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. A redeemed marriage has this agape love, covenant love at its foundation. And so we see here then that a redeemed marriage with this covenant and agape love as its foundation has three key components. The first one is vertical love. Vertical love, again, this agape love comes from God. It is a gift from God and it is sourced from God. Jesus in Mark 12, verses 28 through 30 says this, the most important command is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. When a couple together has this vertical love, a heart that is tuned to the love of God, God begins to chisel away at our brokenness. God begins to shape and form our love away from just an eros love into a way that is a covenant love that is not self-serving, that is rooted in the ways of God, that is together they behold the love of God, that is together they behold the goodness of God. God begins to shape and form them into the likeness of God. Secondly, a key component to agape love is that it is truthful. In other words, truthful about ourselves and truthful about our spouses. As we mentioned, these decaying marriages often have this inflated view of a spouse and then an inflated view of myself and the problem is it ends up being this back and forth, you're the problem, no, you're the problem, no, you're the problem. And what we don't realize is we're often projecting our own brokenness onto our spouse. I remember early on in my marriage with Jeff, I used to get really frustrated really easily with him whenever he was frustrated about something else. I noticed that I was always absorbing his frustration. I was always absorbing his anger, which he is not an angry person. Once you meet my husband, you will see he is one of the gentlest, most kind, even-keeled people there is. He's a happy-go-lucky guy. And we're all going to get frustrated, annoyed about stuff now and then, aren't we? And then when children came into the scene and when it came to disciplining our children, sometimes one of us would get frustrated. But whenever he got frustrated, it was different. Whenever he raised his voice a little bit, it was different than when I raised my voice. And eventually I noticed that that every time anyone in our home got frustrated or started to act out, I would absorb all of it and I would tense up and my breathing would get shallow. Until one day that came to a head. Jeff was working with the boys and I just sat on the kitchen floor and I wept. And I wept. 
And what I learned through this incredible means of grace called therapy is some of that was trauma response. And I was projecting my trauma and brokenness on my husband. He's the problem. And what I realized is God began to chisel away at my pain, as God began to chisel away at my trauma, as God began to chisel away at my brokenness. We saw the redeeming grace of God work in our marriage. A redeemed marriage requires truth. Truth that I'm not perfect. Truth that, that I am broken. Truth that, that, that I'm not just this awesome, amazing, perfect person. Yes, we're awesome and amazing, but we've gotta be truthful about our brokenness and the ways that we project our brokenness onto our spouse, but also that our spouses are not perfect either. We can't expect to be our, our spouses to be perfect, but they're broken just as we are broken. Finally, a redeemed marriage has an abiding and persevering commitment. A redeemed marriage has an abiding and persevering commitment. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that it always perseveres. In other words, this relationship that we have and all of this brokenness and pain in history and expectations that we bring into it requires perseverance and abiding love an abiding commitment to each other's interests as my own, an abiding commitment to work on myself and my brokenness, and also an abiding commitment to seek God together. And sometimes this abiding commitment means taking that next step and doing something about it. Because let's face it, sometimes this brokenness mounds and it builds up and couples begin to drift apart. And this abiding commitment means taking that next step to seek help from a pastor or a therapist or a friend and just naming, you know what? We could take the step next step and we could grow together. Never forget my wedding day 15 years ago. It was magical. It was the wedding day of my dreams. My dad and mom had arranged a horse-drawn carriage. It was an outdoor wedding on their 40-acre farm in their backyard gazebo. And my dad had arranged this, this horse-drawn carriage that, that when we got off, he would walk me down the aisle. And I tell you what, every single picture of my dad, he is sobbing. <laughs> we don't have one picture of him from that day where he's just not a train wreck. And I just remember walking down the aisle and my eyes locked on the man of my dreams, Jeff. And then standing there face to face, hand to hand, together saying our vows, together saying I do, 
and then saying yes to spending our lives together. And you see this agape love, this covenant love that we made at the altar that day when we said yes, it's a really special and strong yes, it's a covenant kind of yes. You see, it's a yes so strong that it is a no to anything that would get in the way of our yes. It's a yes so strong that it is a no to any person that would get in the way of our yes. It's a yes so strong that it is a commitment to working on our brokenness together. It's a yes so strong that we want to be truthful. And also, on that day when we said our yes, we didn't just say a horizontal yes. But together we said a vertical yes. That it was a yes so strong that together our hearts would be in tune with God. That it was a yes so strong that together we would seek the power and the presence of God. That it was a yes so strong that together we would grow ourselves and our marriages. That it was a yes so strong that together we would recognize that we had a lot of brokenness in our marriage and that we would bring it before a living and a redeeming and a gracious and a transforming God. See, here's what I want to say to you, dear ones. A marriage isn't going to be fixed by this sermon. I'm a pastor. We have 25 minutes together. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a marriage expert. I'm a pastor that wants to see marriages thrive. I'm a pastor that wants to see relationships within the body of Christ flourish. And so pastorally, what I would then urge you to do this morning is to return to that yes. The yes to your life partner or friend or family member and your collective yes to God. And then perhaps simply ask God, Lord, What does today's yes look like? Let us pray. Living Lord, we are broken, but we thank you that by your grace, you are presently redeeming us. So God, we pray for those who perhaps it's been a while that they've given you their yes. Yes to grace, yes to love, yes to healing, yes to redemption, yes to the next step forward, yes to giving myself away, yes to following you, yes to obedience, and yes to working on my relationships or marriage. And I pray that as our hearts beat, that they would beat, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.
Yes, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.